Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 22nd of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, man taken to our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda yesterday after hitting his head on the ground has been transferred to Beaumont Hospital for treatment. He said to have suffered serious injury. The grandfather is one of a number of people who were injured at the blessings of the graves in St. Patrick's Cemetery, Dowdles Hill, Dundalk. Gardaí and Dundalk are questioning a man arrested yesterday after a car drove at speed recklessly through the graveyard. Thousands of of people paying their respects to loved ones will be thankful this morning that no one was killed in what was an exceptionally frightening experience. Father Mark O'Hagan is uh, the parish priest and uh, joins us. Good morning, Father, and uh, thank you uh, for taking the time. Uh, I'm sure a, a lot of people heard you talk a- about this yesterday and indeed how you were in the line of fire, if I can put it that way, putting your hand up uh, to try and stop this car from continuing on. Uh, it must have been a very, very frightening experience. Very, um, what's the word? Uh, I think myself, along with everybody, was just in total shock and disbelief that this was actually happening in our town and and in the graveyard. You know, it was just just startling. You know, uh, basically, it it had finished. The the blessing of the graves was actually coming to an end, and uh, they were finished the rosary. And I could hear to my left. I was in the podium. I could hear to the left. Couldn't see anything. Like screaming and shouting, and I put my head round the corner, and I could see hundreds of people just running and screaming and shouting. And people were shouting up at me, "Father, to phone for an ambulance! Quick, phone for an ambulance!" And I distinctly knew something serious was going on, or something serious had just happened. And I got off, and I ran towards the Order Malta to get help. And they were seeing me run, and they ran straight to the person and shouted, "They have phoned the ambulance!" And at this stage, I phoned, because I got onto the phone and um, phoned for the guards to notify the guards that there was an incident happening in, in, in the graveyard. At this stage, I didn't know what was happening. Uh, and next thing, I could hear the car revving, and it sped past me at a high speed. I went up to the upper uh, uh, car park where it seemed to have done wheelies and uh, seemed to have hit a number of cars and turned and you could see it revving up again and black smoke coming up and I could just see the poor people in the graveyard in front of them just running uh, you know 
car came back down the path that went up again, that had previously passed me on, and I was still on the phone, and I tried to put my left hand out. I was a good distance away from the car, you know, in the grass verge, uh, but uh, my left hand out, I have to say, please, please stop this, please slow down before somebody's actually killed here. And uh, the car then came up uh, onto the curb towards myself. I moved out of the way and it kept moving past me. I thought it was going to hit the podium where the choir and other people and priests were standing on. But it moved and went back onto the path again. And uh, moved past, back the way it came and speeded off through the graveyard. At this point I got the guards and they were notified and they were on their way. I went over to, I believe there was a man injured and um, went over to him to see how he was and then anointed him. And then at that stage I I took the adrenaline set in and I started just asking people to please get off the footpath, get off the road, because at that stage I didn't know, uh, or nobody knew if the car was still in the graveyard, what was happening, and anyway, just to minimise anybody else being hurt or whatever, I just went round and asked everybody, and we all called in the antenna, could everybody please get off the footpath and, and, and in among the graves, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but at this stage, I think uh, the car had left the graveyard, you know, and went back to the man again. Yeah. Do, you, do, do you think an instinct took over how you reacted? I think it did, yeah, yeah. Mm. You spoke about the adrenaline there, and uh, was it a, as if uh, you were uh, outside of yourself looking in on what was happening? I, I just took part. My concern was that my, my big thing was just making sure everybody was safe. You know, it wow. instantly came to me naturally just come to that everybody, that people were safe and mm. just to get off the footpath. That's what my yeah. thing was. And looking at people, you could see fear uh, in their eyes and their faces, as I said, mm. and uh, just total disbelief. And mm, no, it, it well, that's what I was going to ask you. Your, your, your reaction does seem remarkable. A lot of people would instinctively run away, whereas uh, your instinct uh, asked you to make sure that people were safe. Uh, you do sound a, a little bit shaken this morning. I hope you don't mind me saying so, Father. <laughs> I, I think it's still disbelief, if you know what I yeah. mean. What, yeah. what, what happened, I just I can't believe at a religious ceremony, you know, where people come together for the blessings of the graves, as you, if you said there at the beginning of the programme, uh, coming to pray, uh, for their loved ones that have yeah. died. And not only that, it's also a community uh, uh, aspect as well where people come together, maybe haven't seen each other from one year to the next. They make a day of it and go out, you know. Mm. It was just torn upside down yesterday. It was just total disbelief, you know. Okay. Stay with us if you can. I'm going to uh, speak to some other people. Uh, Peter Fitzpatrick is an independent TD and he's on the line. You were in the graveyard yesterday, Peter, were you? Yeah, Michael, I attended uh, the graveyard yesterday it was my wife. Uh, my mother and father's buried there. My, my mother died in 2007, sorry, 2014, and my dad died in 2007. Uh, I've never seen or experienced anything like that in my life yesterday. Myself and my wife and all, all, all the local families were all gathered together. The next time we heard a bang and a big load of smoke up in the air, nobody knew what happened. And all of a sudden, this car came out from a crowd at very, very high speed, took a very sharp turn to the left, headed down towards the graveyard, and people were just looking at each other and children were moaning and crying, and people were starting to panic, and nobody knew what actually to do. It, it was unbelievable. No one knew. And then all of a sudden, we, we thought the whole thing stopped. And then maybe about 20 or 30 seconds later, the car came down the far side of the graveyard at a very, very high speed, just beside us. 
And mm. what we could see was, all we could see was, this, the, the, you could actually see the driver of the car, big, big pair of shoulders in there, the face uh, up towards the windscreen. He didn't care. It, in, in fairness, it's an accurate medical there, yes, that nobody was killed. This man, this man had no respect for nobody whatsoever. And in fairness, it's the closest thing, and, I, and I'm going to say this, it's the closest thing that I ever seen to attempted murder. This man, his head must have been blown into places. And the speed, uh, you wouldn't see in his star skin hot film, the speed he was going was unbelievable. I, I'm sitting, like, I listened to Father Mark there talking now on the radio station, mm. and he's showing, and you want to see, like, the, the families, yes, it was mainly old and young people there, yes, it was. And I, I said, yeah, like, we, 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 we meet all these families on a yearly basis, all beside each other's graves, and we all talking about the mums mm. and the dads and all that. But it was a day to celebrate there, yes, there was. But this, this one tug has ruined everybody, and Walking into the graveyard, people were, were you know, couldn't believe what was happening. They were all trying to say, "Listen, we we, we can't go back here now." Well, it can this have a, an but awful effect on people, not just yesterday, but for time to come. I mean, there can be psychological scars after seeing something like this. I mean, when the incident happened, uh, I, I think there was a lot of confusion. I think there was talk of a, a second car. Uh, there was a lot of people running, screaming crying, as you say, a panic. Uh, 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 did you think there was a, a terrorist attack at any stage? Like when, when I seen the smoke and the dust, I didn't know what was happening. But then when, when the car came out of a crowd, it was like a, it was like a knife and through butter. The speed he came out of was unbelievable. And all I could see was people jumping to the right-hand side, the left-hand side. And in fairness, there was someone on, 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 on the microphone shouting, please mm. keep off the footpad. Mm. And I'm going to be, we, we, we criticise, and this is not a political mm. statement, we do criticise the Amman service and everything else, but the Amman service done an absolutely fantastic job yesterday, themselves in the older market. They were so well organised, they were getting people out of the way, they were looking after the people who were injured. And in fairness, it, not too many people panicked there yes, there was. Mm. Like, the person, the person that, that, was, that was controlling the microphone yesterday was telling people to stay off the footpads because the footpad was a dangerous place. Mm. At least when you did headstones, you know, that if you did start to go to the crowds and that, they had an opportunity. But this, this man who was caught there yesterday, he's a tug. And he does not realise the damage that he's done to these old people, young people, as it is. Like, I was, I was standing mm. beside a granny and a 14-year-old granddaughter, and she was there rolling and crying and screaming. And, and it felt like, like, we all kind of panicked in the beginning, yeah. but then we all had to, had, to, had to stay still. But what happened yesterday should, should not have happened yesterday. It's amazing how instinct uh, takes over, as it did with Father Mark, or professional training kicks in when needed, and at the time that it's needed. Do we know anything about the motivation for this? No, Michael, uh, you'd always hear these rumours. Nobody knows. The only good thing, yes, there was the guards apprehended this, uh, this mm-hmm. person. He's in the guard, the dog guard station at the moment. Uh, I will be up to the guard station this morning and having a chat. I, I, I'm hoping the superintendent there, Joe Coley, he, he's waiting in annual leave there. I'm hoping he's back this week. It, it's important okay. that we find it. This, this, this can't happen again. He's, like As I said, he is, mm. uh, this, this is a graveyard. Hundreds of people there yesterday. And in fairness, like, you know, I take off my hat to Father Mark there yesterday in, mm. in, 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 in the tremendous work that he's done. And in fairness to all the staff out there uh, shouting across the okay. microphone, telling people, don't panic, don't panic. And in fairness, the people in the door didn't panic yesterday. Okay, stay there if you will as well, Peter, please, if you can. Conor Keelan, a Fianna Fáil councillor, is on the line with us as well. Good morning, Conor, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. You were in the back row when this happened. I was, yes. Um, asked uh uh, at my uh, at my um, uh, mother's grave with family relatives in the back lawn cemetery. Um, uh, again, to echo sentiments, um, uh, it was um, uh, it was uh, uh, my initial sentiments were um, ones of uh, shock and uh, anger that um, 
that that such uh, uh, such an experience had occurred. Um, uh, on on. Were a, you afraid? Did you did you think this might be a terrorist attack, and maybe we're all at risk here? Well, um, uh, given the, given the, the uh, given the the uh, way that the driver was um, uh, was uh, dr- uh, driving down the the Lawn Cemetery, I saw the fear. Uh, and shock on on the many faces, and indeed uh, people did not know what way uh, he was what way he was going to go next. Um, that was there was was terror on, on people's faces, mm. um, and uh, uh, people, well, that's it. It was uh, a terrorist uh, attack in that uh, sense that people were terrorised. Well, people were certainly terrorised yeah. mm. by mm. Uh, by the by the uh, by the the individual, and um, uh, and it is it is a miracle that that no one. Has been that no one uh, that uh, it is a miracle that that so few have been um, that so few have been uh, injured. How many people uh, were, were attending yesterday? Do you think? Sorry. How many people would have attended the blessing of the graves? Several thousand. Uh, several thousand attend this event on an annual basis. It is it is arguably the the largest uh, uh, participatory civil event in the Dundalk calendar on an annual basis. Right, uh, and you want to know why it's not policed? Well, um, uh, last year, last year there was a guard of presence um, at the front um, at, at the front entrance um, to the. Uh, uh, there was uh, uh, guardy were, were present um, uh, there at, at the pedestrian entrances. Um, equally, mm. um, equally, there was uh, there were guardy uh, on duty um, when uh, cars were. Um, Driving in, um, in uh, in a couple of years uh, prior to that, there were guardy visible on horseback as well. Um, some some of your listeners may recall that um, uh, some years ago as well, uh, we were uh, we were forced to call in a, a guard a helicopter overhead mm. because there was there was a there was a possibility of a uh, of of a feud breaking out in the cemetery and um, uh, uh, the uh, we were. Uh, Parishioners were asked to vacate on the day mm. in question. Now, um, so, that, that, uh, so like there has been unfortunate experiences here, you know. Um, so like um, uh, now, I I have uh, I also attend um, Calvary Cemetery in Drogheda. Now, um, uh, there is um, a traffic management plan. There is also a guard of presence there on the day. I've seen it. Mm. Now, um, uh, when the uh, when we did have a functioning burial board up until 2014, before um, before Phil Hogan decided to abolish them, there was always consultation between uh, the burial board and um, uh, and the uh, uh, and the uh, guardee. And the burial uh, boards would have requested a guard of presence. They would. That was always done. Now the the operations and maintenance upkeep upkeep maintenance of the cemeteries are now under under mm. the uh, uh, control of the local authority. Um, but um, uh, the if, and councillors are forced now to um, to request through um, notice of question etc about maintenance and upkeep uh, at council meetings. But in terms of uh, the likes of um, uh, mm. and uh, uh, we would expect that um, uh, a, pre- a guard of presence would be. Um, uh, a norm, particularly given mm. the size of people who are 
and numbers who well, are it's coming a, a, to a huge crowd uh, yeah. by any standards and yeah. uh, the type of crowd that would require a traffic management plan uh, at a minimum I would have thought exactly. uh, F- Father Mark are, are, are they uh, fair criticisms do you think uh, should there have been a, a guarded presence there well, I, I have to say, the first thing I noticed when I was coming up to the graveyard was I noticed there was no guard or presence because the guards are always there. As far as I can remember, I've been in dog now 15 years, and they were always present. And I I was a bit startled to see that there was no guard or presence there, uh, you know, myself. Mm. But, you know, I don't think, you know, in hindsight, when you look back, you know, the guard or presence there would have stopped this guy anyway, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Uh, let me uh, talk to Patricia, who's on the other line. Patricia McKenna, good morning to you, and uh, thanks for calling us. Uh, you were there with your grandchildren yesterday. I was indeed, Michael. Good uh, morning to you. Good morning to you. H- h- how are you feeling, or how did you feel yesterday? Or Oh, yesterday was absolutely terrifying. Um, my granddaughter was very, very, very annoyed about it all. Um, it, it was just horrific. Now, I wasn't as close as some people were, but we were still on the path that we had to jump into the grave and into another grave to get out of the way in there. But to me, I could swear there was two cars. When I seemed to be the only one, I could swear two cars passed. The madman in the first one. And I thought another car come then. But now, I'll stand to be correct. Mm. But um, everybody tried to help everybody now, in all honesty. I had a lady that, because my wee one was panicking, uh, to hold a hand uh, to get out of the graveyard. It was hard enough to get out of the graveyard now because mm-hmm. we all had to stay on the one side. Then another week girl beside me, she was starting to get sick. So I just spare a bottle of water, I give it to her. So. But other than that, until we got right in, my car was parked in Catherine Road, so we had some walk. Mm. You know. I'm sure. Uh, did you fear for your safety, for the safety of uh, your family? Of course I did, yeah. Yeah, you know, I tried to put one sitting on top of the pram and one sitting in the pram and get out as quick as we could. Okay, very You know, when we were allowed, mm. yeah, when mm. we were allowed, like, you know, like you're talking about almost seven-year-old and a four-year-old, mm. you know, in a pram, you know, so, and I was on my own at that stage, like, you know. Mm. It's hard to comprehend, uh, it, <laughs> you know, when... Oh, it is, it's when, terrible. It's, it is really terrible, like, you know, yeah. on such a day that... So many thousands of people are out paying their respects to their loved ones, you know, mm. and for that. Uh, and I really don't think cars should be allowed in Deadly Cell Graveyard. Mm. I really believe that. Yeah. You know, really don't. Or they should be searched going in, one or the other, but I don't think so. Mm. If I might say on that, Michael, um, yeah, that, that's a matter that's, that is going to have to be seriously checked uh, for next year. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I do think that... Um, uh, Gardy uh, and our stewards are going to be required for um, for next year. Um, in the past, with the burial board, in fact, um, uh, uh, additional cars were prohibited from entry into the cemetery, with the exception of being allowed park in designated parking areas. Um, uh, in uh, the situation, what happened there on Sunday? Cars were a lot of cars were parking uh, all over um, parts of the lawn, uh, parts of additional lawn space. Um, and um, uh, so, like, uh, something is going to have to be addressed with that, frankly. Um, and um, uh, you're going to need a presence on the gate to stop that. And indeed, um, if, if there was a presence on the gate, at least people could check if there's any potential undesirables coming into the cemetery on the day. Mm. 
Okay. Uh, let me conclude with Father Marco O'Hagan uh, because as I was saying uh, to Patricia, it's hard to comprehend how it must feel to be in a situation like that if you haven't been in that situation. Everybody speaking to us this morning has been and uh, I imagine that when you are in a, a situation like that, you realise how vulnerable you are or how vulnerable we can be and that security and public safety is paramount and uh, I take it that lessons will have to be learned from this year and while people... Uh, we'll hope that everybody is well and uh, we'll uh, try and get over it as best they can. Uh, we will have to look at, at next year's event and uh, an event that attracts so many people and to ensure that those people are safe. Oh, yes. It's, uh, it's, uh, I, I agree with uh, Councillor Keenan there. You know, it is something that has to be looked at. In the past, when Andy Gardner was there, uh, uh, the elderly and infirm were only ones allowed into the graveyard and that's why I was a bit startled why there was nobody there this year you know I do so and you know I've heard people are angry and you know, you know I just asked for people to be calm and just would uh, at this point and that the authorities uh, have the gentleman uh, in question in custody uh, uh, do their job now and uh, remember the man that was injured and his family, what they're going through at the moment, you know, uh, uh, what he, he's going through at the moment, uh, and uh, we keep him in our prayers. And yes, it is definitely something on the cards that we need to look at. We need to look at in relation to um, in relation to security for next year. Okay, and I'm sure uh, the man in hospital is on the minds of everybody this morning. Thank you uh, for speaking to us as well. Thanks to all of our our guests uh, this morning, Father Marco Hagen, Councillor Conor Keelan, Peter Fitzpatrick, TD and Patricia McKenna. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Irish Independent reported last week that the price of new and used diesel and petrol cars are to go up by as much as €1,000 from July of next year. Barry Aldworth, Senior Media Officer with AA Ireland, is on the line. Good morning to you, Barry, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. What about that calculation to begin with? Uh, Is uh, that uh, the kind of increase that you'd expect from July? Yes, so there are changes being proposed to the motor tax system and to the extent of VRT tax and range of other taxes associated with your car. The €1,000 figure, it's the extreme end. I think more likely you're going to see people notice an increase of between two and €400 on the cost of a new car or the cost of a diesel import. And again, that's not, an in, that's not a small sum by any means. People will certainly feel it coming out of their pockets. But the €1,000 figure is probably the more extreme end. It's the kind of cars with a larger engine or cars that are the worst emitters mm-hmm. of the, the kind of uh, fuels and gases that we're associating with climate change. So people will certainly see a change in the cost of buying a car post-June of next year. Will it be as much as a thousand euro? I think in the majority of cases, probably not. Yeah, I think uh, the calculation in the Indo to be uh, fair to uh, Kevin Doyle and Eddie Cunningham, uh, who wrote uh, this story, would be in line with what you're saying uh, that uh, the additional cost because of emissions would be in between uh, two hundred and four hundred euro. But uh, they were suggesting that a, a number of other measures added to that could see this increase of a thousand euro. They're talking about uh, the way. Uh, VRT is calculated and how that may change and also the current ND, uh, NEDC system uh, which will make way for a WLTP 
system uh, will lead to increases of up to €550. Yes, so there's a range of factors being proposed and a range of ideas being proposed and this is part of an ongoing effort by government and really something that we have to commit ourselves to to try and make, well, try and reduce, I suppose, in the first instance, Ireland's reliance on the car, but to make sure that those who are using a car are using cleaner cars than what are currently on our roads. And there is, to be fair, again, to government, particularly in relation to the proposals around VRT and excise charges for imports, Mm. there is a real problem there that they are facing at the moment where the UK government have made significant efforts to try and well, try and disincentivize people from buying diesel cars or holding on to their diesel cars. And they're working. Uh, they're making it more expensive to have these cars so people don't want them and they're selling them. And the value of sterling is such uh, that they can be bought cheaply here as a result. Absolutely. And all the factors, be it, well, both the cost of this, an import dropping because of the collapse of the sterling and the fact that the UK government are trying to push them out means more and more UK diesel cars are finding their ways into Ireland and frankly the government doesn't want those diesel cars coming in so they've had to look at ways of of amending the taxation on them to well to make people less likely to go to the UK import market. Mm. And I think uh, the AA's position on VRT has always been uh, that it's an unfair tax that it's double taxation on motorists. Again, there there is some legitimacy to it. It is ultimately up to Ireland whether they want to have, well, to the Irish government, whether they want that tax in place or not. I think ultimately you just need to ensure that it's applied fairly. You don't want people unnecessarily punished for choosing to import a car, but you do have to, particularly in the context of UK diesel cars finding their way into Ireland, you do need to look at steps to reduce people and make them less likely to choose that option. Do you think people will like this? Uh, Because we quite often hear everybody wants to do their bit uh, to protect the environment, to save the world, but nobody wants to pay for it. I think that's the problem. I think people's, you know, their mind first and foremost goes to their own pocket, and that's understandable. And again, where I would like to see government proceed cautiously here is you can't simply keep on adding more taxes, more taxes, and think you're doing something great for climate change. Because again, if people don't have an alternative to the private car, they'll simply pay more taxes and they'll keep using their car. If you want to get people out of their car, if you want to get people using alternative methods of transport where they can, invest in those options. Give people better cycle lanes, give people better public transport. Mm. And by and large, they'll they'll choose not to use the car if it's the most sensible option for them to use something else. So mm. I think people are cognizant of the importance of climate change and the importance of doing our own bit. But I think government needs to be very careful of just saying, well, we'll throw a few more taxes on and that'll be the job done. Yeah, well, I mean, for many people, there won't be an alternative. There's no possibility of buying a new car which is what you'd have to be in a position to do if you want an electric car, and a a bicycle just wouldn't be feasible for a lot of people. Absolutely. So then we come back to uh, you have to start investing in rural public transport. You have to give people those alternatives. If you're simply not doing that, you can't just bring in new taxes and clap yourself on the back and say you've done something great for climate change. Hmm. Is that what they're going to do? 
unfortunately it looks like that's the strategy yeah. they're going to pursue at least initially hopefully the revenue well the revenue raised from these new taxations will be reinvested properly and we will see change come down the pipeline but at least in the short term future it does look like things are going to get more expensive for All the right. motorists and could be seen as a tax break for uh, the those who were better off to some extent, yes, yeah. I think. Okay. All right. We leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Barry Alwards, uh, Senior Media Officer with AA Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now back uh, to water charges and uh, the Fine Gael Fianna Fáil solution of getting rid of water charges and how that is uh, to introduce them for some people. Declan Brannock is a Fianna Fáil TD for Louth and joins us now. And a very good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, it seems as though some people will be paying up uh, to €500 Euro a year. Um, Michael, this absolutely a myth that has been propagated. Uh, the current issue in relation to uh, water cost conservation certainly uh, is what is on the table. I want to make it very, very clear. Domestic water charges that were introduced in 2015 were repealed in 2016 and there are no additional water charges coming in. This new system is a focus on water conservation and not wastage. We we need to, we have all sorts of issues being discussed about whether water should be in public ownership or private ownership. I personally believe it should be in public ownership. But that is a smokescreen around what the real issues for supply of water in this country is. I spent almost 25 years as a secretary to group water scheme. I think I have a little bit of experience in knowing uh, what it takes to deliver water. It's about having the correct infrastructure, the correct storage facilities, being able to supply it uh, three, six, five days of the year uh, where possible. It's about the quality of water, and that's where the focus needs to be. And I want to reassure anybody out there listening that the issue of the charge that you mentioned of €500, and by the way, it's 250 for excess and excessive use of water, and if you have both water and sewage, the capped figure is 500 uh, for both supplies, and you get three years in which to correct the problem. Mm. I imagine I do, most people have both, don't they? Uh, no, not at all, Michael. Not. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, for, for example, in County Louth, uh, 8% of the domestic supply is supplied by group water schemes. There are 11 small schemes in the county. Uh, no, I, I know, but most people who are on the public system would have water coming in and water going out. Uh, in, in, in areas for water and sewage supply, mainly in most villages and towns. But once you go beyond usually the 30 mile limit in any village or yeah, town. As you say, they're on group order schemes uh, and might have septic tanks and so on. But for most people who are supplied by Irish water, they have water coming in and they have water going out. So Absolutely. There, Absolutely. there's the possibility of uh, these charges of 250 for excessive usage of both, uh, which yes. is this figure of. 500 euro which will be charged to you uh, yes yeah, that, so that's that, a water that, charge it, it is a water charge for excessive use and I think to put it in, 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 in its perspective for people listening the threshold every household gets 213,000 litres of water free 1.7 times more than what the average annual usage is and if you have more than four people in the house there's an additional 125,000 mm. uh, litres per person so oh, sorry 25,000 litres per person who live at that dwelling if somebody has a medical condition 
there are exemptions there. Uh, this particular regime uh, has been brought about by an expert commission uh, and has been recommended by that commission, which is called a commission mm. regulation. Yeah, but there's all sorts of experts and commissions and expert commissions and so on, but people don't want water charges, and these are water charges. This is the I, Fianna Fáil solution to I, what people were complaining about. Michael, I fully agree with you. Nobody wants water charges. But the reality is this, that we pay. There is nothing free in this world. Your listeners know that. And if water charges are not there, which they're not, there's going to be a charge for fragrant and excessive use of water. The water charges would be paid for in some other way. I mean, the reality is that that that's the situation. People know it. If you don't pay it one way, you pay it the other way. Uh, and unfortunately, um, conservation, and, and that is why we're trying to invest, and, and, and we need to invest in water supplies. I mean, there is a myth in this country, indeed, uh, an attitude survey uh, only done in recent days okay. uh, shows that 25% of the people in Ireland were found to believe that do not need to conserve water yeah. due to the amount of rainfall in Ireland. Yeah, and that was the survey that was released on the day that the uh, charges were announced last Thursday, I, I think. Let's uh, assume that you're right. Uh, but if, if you are right and people don't want water charges, do you think that the government should continue this uh, track of introducing water charges? Uh, they're not introducing water charges. They're introducing charges for misuse of water. We, we, there are 52% of the public in Ireland acknowledge that the waste water. Uh, but by the way, it's okay, not w- w- water. Sorry, my if, if people not don't to... want water charges for excessive use, should they be introduced? Uh, if somebody is misusing water, I want to define what I believe in that. That somebody who's okay. who has knowingly has a leak that can be fixed. Yeah. I have every sympathy where there are properties where uh, water leakage may be under the mm. infrastructure of the, of the foundations, and some compromise has to be found there. But it's not just... I've heard of properties that have had hundreds of thousands of litres of water like, pouring out every day, and Irish water that's, hasn't, that's has, been, exactly, has been told and hasn't come to fix it. But anyway... Exactly, sorry, Michael, that's the exact point I was going to go on to before you interrupted me. We know that the major use loss of water, indeed 43% of all treated water is being lost in the mains pipe network that is the responsibility of Irish water. Mm. Despite that, they're carrying out over 1,500 leak repairs per month and they have a target to save 166 million litres daily by 2021. But the reality... But you Michael, see, P- P- the reality is people don't Michael, trust you. Michael, if you let me finish the point, please. The reason I said I have some experience in this, the reality is that your listeners would be flabbergasted to know about that. But the reality is that, believe it or not, most of the pipe network doing it in, in this country in the last 40, 50 years, regrettably, believe it or not, despite the fact of the high standard of plastic and plastic supply of those pipes, they naturally leak. That's the reality of it. I can tell you that we will be devils as Secretary of a Group Water Scheme, and any Group Water Scheme Secretary or Committee, of which I said there's 11 mm. in this county, the small groupings trying to operate, will tell you that it's next to impossible not to have major leaks. So we have a combination, and I started speaking on this at the outset, about a responsibility, both responsibility of Irish water and the responsibility of the user of the water to conserve it. The reality is that there are a lot of listeners here who are listening to you this morning who are farmers, commercial factories, pubs, who know 
they must keep a very close eye on the usage of the water because they are charged, lest you don't know, Michael, from, from May of this year, one euro 92 cent per cubic meter. That's for 120 gallons of water. On top of that, they have a charge of 44 euro 81 cent as a standing charge for water and a further 4481 as a standing charge for for the for water out okay maybe these are the arguments for reintroducing water charges and oh, maybe no. you don't want to call them water charges but the problem here is that people don't trust you uh, and by you i mean politicians they don't trust what they're being told here in respect of this and they believe yeah. that these are water charges uh, and that they're going to be introduced at this level where you have uh, this allowance of 213000 litres. That'll be reduced to 150,000 to 100,000 to no, something that, to, to a situation where everybody in the country is going to end up paying water charges despite being promised otherwise. Michael, the 213,000 litres is there and set in stone. The reality is Oh. I wonder what the reality is. The reality is is that the line has dropped out and we've lost Eklund Branica for some reason. Uh, I've no idea what happened there. I'm sure uh, uh, the deputy uh, is as confused as me. Uh, but uh, that is uh, the situation anyway with water charges. Uh, the f- uh, bills won't arrive uh, until the beginning of 2021. Undoubtedly, there'll be much discussion and uh, debate before then. But our, our thanks this morning and apologies to to Fianna Fáil TD for loud Declan Braddock. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. A lot of calls today, Marie. A lot of calls, Michael. Plenty of people in touch in relation to what happened at Dowdles Hill yesterday at the Blessing of the Graves ceremony. Uh, Michael says, a listener, it happened only feet away from my family's grave. My granddaughter was playing on the grass when it happened only that we screamed at our man, her mam to grab her and run into, into the hedge until the car passed. I would hate to think what the outcome would have been, says this listener. God, the car yeah, was yeah. driving so fast and we were shouting for people to get out of the way. Wow, frightening. Frightening. Another listener says that he concurs with Patricia. He was in the cemetery and he also saw two cars involved. Um, attractive phoned in and she says she's shocked to hear mm. what happened you think that when you go to a cemetery of all places that you are safe and she just can't get over what happened and she just thinks it's an utter disgrace and feels sorry for the person who was injured and hopes that they mm. make a full recovery Hard to imagine the fear or the sense of uh, panic uh, that took hold yesterday afternoon uh, there is uh, some news breaking in relation to this as you may have heard in the headlines Ruth O'Connell has come into us and uh, Gardy are confirming now that uh, the car was stolen in the graveyard Yes it was actually it wasn't a stolen car coming into mm. the graveyard it was actually taken from the graveyard itself um, and I, I don't know if anyone has seen the, the footage of it, there's not much left of the car. Um, we could see what it looked like when mm. it was abandoned on the race course road. So yeah. there. Uh, well, as we were hearing, there were thousands of people there, and many yeah. of them would have seen it firsthand. And I, I suppose Gardy are interested to know if anybody might have seen something beforehand, because this happened at a, about twenty to four. But with an yeah. event so big and so many people trying to get into the graveyard, people tend to arrive very early. So there may have been Absolutely. some activity. I, that I was out for lunch yesterday, and when I was driving past, I'd remarked 
fact that it was easily an hour before that that people were parking on the Inner Relief Road so they could get away early afterwards. Well, Little yeah. did they know mm. what was about to unfurl. But um, the, the guards are very keen to hear from witnesses to all the stages of this incident, from, as you say, from before during and after the incident where uh, the car was abandoned on the racecourse road and a suspect was arrested on the inner relief road. Um, they, they want to hear from everybody. Don't feel you only know a little bit and it wouldn't be of any use. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. They're mm. piecing everything together at this stage. So, they, so they're urging anyone with information who was there yesterday to come forward. The Dundalk Garda station number is 042 or the Garda Confidential line. Now I know um, we're forever reading it out in some of our scripts when mm. people are making appeals, people mightn't realise that's a recorded uh, service there. So you leave, uh, it's like an answering machine and you leave whatever information you have there and whether you want somebody to ring you back is up to you, but you can leave the information on that line. It's just to warn people so they're not caught unawares when they're expecting a human being to answer and they just get a, yeah. a, a recording. Okay, well we, we know that there was one car involved uh, and as you say that car has been destroyed. We know now that that car was stolen inside the yeah. graveyard, uh, so but there was confusion some f- continues I think about, about as to car. whether there was a second car because Patricia was telling us this morning she was certain there was a second Absolutely, car. Absolutely and I've heard that from many other people but I did ask somebody knowing I was coming on now did they want me to look for information on a second car and they seem to be satisfied that they're only looking for this one car and this one driver in connection with what actually went on and the manner of the driving that they're investigating. I know there were some comments on Facebook uh, questioning the term endangerment. That's a very technical legal term, but if uh, that charge relates to recklessly or intentionally endangering lives, and that is clearly anyone who was there yesterday, um, wouldn't question that aspect. I know there others are suggesting it was attempted murder. But uh, you would have to prove that there was an intention to kill. And while uh, it seems bizarre behaviour to be ha- uh, carrying out in, in, a, in a graveyard that is absolutely full, um, it's so well attended mm. every year. Um, it may seem a bit weird to be que- questioning the attempted murder aspect of it. But uh, so far, there's no indications that he deliberately uh, attempted to hit people like they were skittles the way you mm. would I know people were jumping yeah, out of the way ve- but the ve- way you would ve- hear in America early route. Yeah. I mean we don't know if the person was copus mentis or, or, or what the situation absolutely. was uh, I'm just explaining to people who are commenting on our Facebook pages and saying it's attempted murder uh, th- that's not necessarily the case. Okay, uh, probably uh, not uh, wise to speculate on what charges might be preferred at uh, this stage, uh, but we leave it there for the moment. Thanks uh, for the latest on that, Ruth O'Connell, uh, and undoubtedly the phones have been buzzing this morning. They really have, Michael. Joanne was in touch, and Joanne says that her mother was at the cemetery yesterday, was really frightened. They got word that something had happened, Mm. phoned uh, her mother and she was in a complete state because they weren't able to leave the cemetery, that they weren't given permission uh, to leave the cemetery. And she says it really has had an awful effect on people that many who go to the blessings of the graves every year and for anyone who does go will know this, a lot of elderly people there, Michael, mm, in attendance. Mm, mm, mm. So, uh, you know, for something like this to happen when you're least expecting it, it's mm. somewhere you feel to be safe, as Joanne says, yeah. that it really is very traumatic for well, people. it's a very personal occasion uh, and I think you'll find uh, the very youngest and the very oldest uh, members of all families attending. 
Breathe says, I was in the churchyard yesterday. Beside the incident, there were nearly as many cars inside the churchyard as people. No way for guards or ambulance to get through. Mm. And that this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Really should be looked at. Uh, Brendan Moore, disability activist, says that there should be no access for cars to St. Patrick's Cemetery for the blessing of the graves. Only transport that has a valid disability permit uh, should be allowed there, he feels, and that it should be manned, mm. that the cars should be checked for. Well, there'd be a lot of people who wouldn't be there if that was the case, because there's a lot of elderly people who don't have uh, disability status, let alone the disc for the car. So that's probably the argument for manning it, for having a guard presence there mm. so that they could let the elderly and the infirm through. Uh, another listener says that um, the Phil phoned in and says, you're right, Michael, the priest still sounds very shaken on your show. The full implications of what happened are probably only sinking mm. in now. The poor man seems to be in shock. It's the last place you'd expect something like this to happen at a blessing of the graves. And perhaps if there had been some kind of a guard of presence, maybe this person wouldn't have decided to do what he did. But we'll never know. Mm, yeah. That's the we, point. We, we won't, I don't think. Uh, uh, I suppose time will tell uh, as to whether there's uh, some sort of explanation for it or what the motivation for it might have been uh, is something that people will, uh, I think, regardless of uh, the explanation, will fail to understand. Mary phoned in and Mary says that uh, when she heard what she describes Mm. as the bang, this is what people seem to have heard, Mm. she says that she thought it was a gun going off, that people around her thought it was a gun going off. Nobody really was sure what was going on. The people did panic. They didn't know what to do. Mm. When you have a large crowd of people in the one place, it's very frightening because, as you stated yourself, Michael, you feel vulnerable and you know that you're vulnerable and feels that 
moving forward, perhaps when there is a large number of people present at an event, there should automatically be some kind of security so that in the event of something going wrong, that you have somebody there even, you know, to help move people out of 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 the place. Mm. Well, we know that there's people in the world who are looking for large groups of people that could be seen as targets. Uh, and if uh, they're vulnerable in that sense, well, then perhaps they will become targets. And Mary phoned in and Mary says that she was also um, at the cemetery and says that she agrees with the listener, Patricia, that everybody helped each other. And mm. it always shows when something goes wrong, goes wrong that um, there's so much goodness in people. And unfortunately, it was just one person who ruined this for everybody. Okay. So we'll move on from that if we can, Michael, Mm. then. We have a couple of calls in relation to your interview with uh, Barry um, Aldworth from AA. Uh, Absolutely ridiculous, says this listener, for someone representing AA to be pumping out climate hype about the need for more rural public transport. Even in Dublin, it's not cost effective to provide off-peak buses, never mind the deserted country roads and boreens. Is this listener? Okay, right. Interesting call. Uh, I take it uh, that's uh, somebody listening to us in one of our towns. Uh, but I, I think uh, the argument is is that maybe it is cost effective uh, because uh, there will be a world to drive the buses in, uh, whereas there may may not be a world to drive the cars in, or it might be a very expensive world to drive the cars in because of uh, fines that we face uh, for breaching our carbon emission targets. Jack from Cullen says, is this extra tax on cars being ring-fenced for green issues? I doubt it. That's a very good question, yeah. I Mm. doubt Mm. it, says Jack. And he says, we can Mm. thank the Greens for this. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. Send them a Christmas card, maybe. Even though they're not in government. (laughs) We also had a text in just in relation to the water charges, uh, listening into your interview there with Mm. Deputy Bratnock, and says, it's interesting that uh, your guest is insisting that this isn't domestic water charges. Well, if it's not domestic water charges, what is it? Mm. Water (laughs) charges for excessive use, I I think, is uh, the phrase uh, Declan Brannock used. Okay, well, we'll finish on that one, Michael. Thanks for that, Marie, and uh, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to make comment on the programme today and add to what's being said, you can ring us on 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we're going to speak with uh, two people who would be well-known to listeners, regular listeners of uh, this programme about uh, unionist concerns and fears of uh, United Ireland. Jim Wells, who's a DUP MLA for South Down, who doesn't have any such uh, fears or concerns for that matter because he'll tell us that it's never going to happen and uh, Mark Daly who's a Fianna Fáil senator and has been campaigning for United Ireland uh, conducted a report on uh, United Ireland for an Oireachtas committee and more recently has published uh, this report Unionist Concerns and Fears of United Ireland and uh, joins us as well. Uh, very good morning to both of you and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Mark Daly, why are you raising this as an issue if Jim Wells is correct in saying that it's not going to happen? Well, I, I suppose this report stems from the research I did for the Oireachtas Committee on the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. And one of the recommendations of the All-Party Committee was that we would look at the fears and concerns of the unionist community in relation to the issue of United Ireland. And it's not just myself who's 
saying that there will at some stage be a referendum on a United Ireland. We have the McGill Summer School this this week up in Donegal and last year Peter Robinson, the former leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, he too doesn't believe there will be a United Ireland uh, like Jim Wells but he says that the North should prepare for it. But Lady Sylvia Herman who's the Unionist MP for North Down has said on the BBC that she believes because of Brexit that there would be a referendum on a United Ireland in her lifetime and many others in the unionist community have have said to me that they believe there will be a referendum and this comes from Brexit obviously and many in the unionist community believe not all I agree um, that a united Ireland might be better than a Brexit Britain so for that reason and you know learning the lesson of Brexit that you do not hold a referendum and then try to figure out the future you must look at all the issues about a possible and probable referendum in the on the issue of United Ireland and look at all the issues and the concerns, education, housing, uh, security, all of the concerns, and then you address them. And then at the end of that process, you would then have the referendum. Okay. But it is provided for under the Good Friday Agreement and logic dictates that at some stage there will be a referendum. The question is when, um, not an issue of if. All right. I'm not sure if Jim Wells is illogical in his thinking, but I, I doubt he agrees. Uh, Jim Wells, uh, do you believe that Mark Daly is being respectful when he says that your fears and concerns need to be examined, understood and addressed comprehensively so that you can prepare for uh, a united Ireland or a reunited Ireland? Or do you think that's disrespectful? Well, I think Senator Daly is disrespectful at the very start, referring to Northern Ireland as the North. It's not. It's that part of the United Kingdom known as Northern Ireland, and I think terminology is important here. I would never refer to his country as the Free State, or refer to Queen's County or King's County. Now, what, what I would say to you is this: this is all academic because it's all pe- predicated on the view that somewhere along the line, the Secretary of State will be able to assess that there's sufficient support for a change in our constitutional position, and therefore we need to have a referendum. Now, you know, thank you very much, Mr. Daly, for your interest, but we are not interested. The unionist community are not having this conversation. We're not remotely interested in joining our United Ireland. Thank you very much. And quite frankly, it's none of the Oireachtas business. We are an integral part of the United Kingdom, and we will remain so as long as the majority of people in Northern Ireland uh, uh, agree to do so. And that is a de facto situation. And no amount of talking it up and no amount of reporting and discussing it at the doyle is going to remotely interest any of us in changing our constitutional position. Okay, well let me go back to Mark Daly on that point as to whether the unionist community is speaking about this or not because you many contributors uh, to this report, including the son of Ian Paisley. Yeah, I mean I had a wide range of contributors I had a lot of discussions with people who didn't give submissions and the discussion is out there, even the British Prime Minister believes and has said uh, and reported in the Times of London with a conversation with uh, one of her MPs that she didn't, she was concerned that if there was a referendum that the uh, North may not, may vote for United Ireland. Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. Yeah. Northern Ireland. If that... Well, sorry, Jim, I didn't in- interrupt you. Well, he's taking well, exception. Don't, 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 he he don't, don't, is taking right. exception at, at you referring to Northern Ireland as the North. Yeah, so if, and this is the British Prime Minister, the the former Speaker of the House of Representatives, Paul Ryan, spoke about the issue of United Ireland. So the discussion is out there. Arlene Foster herself 
uh, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party has discussed the issue. So the issue is out there. Can, can, can I ask you, Senator Daly, do you... discuss the issue. Do, do, do no, you, just, can I just make the point? Well, well just before you do, because uh, you've, twi- you've twice ignored Jim Wells' point, in fairness to Jim Wells. Uh, uh, do, do you accept that referring to Northern Ireland as the North is offensive, as he contends? If Jim was offended, I am sorry. I will refer to it as Northern Ireland. But can I just make the point in relation to the court case I was, that was held in Northern Ireland, uh, which was taken by a unionist whose son was murdered by the uh, UVF. Uh, who, uh, but the court case was taken against the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. And the court case was taken to get her to write a policy on how she would determine the majority of people in Northern Ireland were in favour of a united Ireland. Now, Jim may not be aware of this court case, but the interesting point about this court case is that the Secretary of State is refusing to put forward a policy on how a referendum on a united Ireland would happen. Now, as Jim knows, that's provided for under the Good Friday Agreement. But what the Secretary of State also has the power is to decide who gets to vote in that referendum, an issue which would only be decided under the Northern Ireland Act when the Secretary of State caused the referendum. Mm. So what we have is an absence of policy and clarity, and I think Jim and myself know the issue of policy neglect seldom goes unpunished. Is this, so not, a, is this is not an underhand way of starting a, a conversation, though? Because we were talking last week uh, about uh, your objection to the position the Irish government had taken on running a, a risk assessment on holding a, a border poll. The government told you that there is no risk because there's no prospect of a border poll. No, 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 they didn't say that that's not what they said. They didn't say there was no prospect of a referendum on the United Ireland. They said that they did not see it as a risk and that it was too important and too sensitive to be dealt with in the national risk assessment. Well, I think However, they said that they didn't envisage the that there would be a poll in uh, the immediate future. Well, again, the, the risk assessment is about immediate to long term. So mm. like, it could be anything in the next 5, 10, 15 or 50 years because they include the issue. But the Irish government warming. doesn't envisage that there will be a poll in that time. There, well, the likelihood is, as I said, Lady Sylvia Herman, the independent okay, you take, assembly you for, North, for North Down, but like, she is reflecting the views of people in her community. And I okay. agree. Like, there is no one view within unionism. Jim Wells, fact, Jim Wells do, do you... Nobody do, speaks for unionism. Do, do, do you uh, take the view of Lady Sylvia Herman more... Uh, cred- did you view it to be more credible than that of uh, Charlie Flanagan, uh, the Minister for Justice in uh, Ireland? Well, first of all, I, I'm sitting here watching the traffic coming from the British Open Gulf, and congratulations to Shane Laurie from the Irish Republic on his fantastic mm. victory. But it did occur to me that the traffic's all uh, going from north to south at the moment. Could I just say that we have no intention of joining them? Uh, you know, the, the reality is that why is, are we dancing on the head of a pin about something that's not going to happen? And it's not going to happen for several reasons. First of all, 99% of what you would label the Protestant Unionist community wish to remain British. And a significant number of the Roman Catholic Nationalist community wish to remain British. The, the, the economy is booming. We have a relative peace in Northern Ireland. Yes, um, record, a bit there. record low unemployment. Yeah. And we've made a major success this morning. A senator, one of the biggest hitters in the Irish Republic, to call us Northern Ireland. So I see that as a, a great step forward if I achieve that. It ain't going to happen because there is no stomach whatsoever for the upheaval and the chaos. Uh, you're stretching it a bit, though, claiming uh, that the majority of nationalists want to remain British. Oh, no, no, not a majority. No, definitely not. Or a uh, significant portion. Uh, yeah, but it only doesn't have to be a significant proportion mm. for it to ensure a majority. But they're not nationalists, like, then, are they? 
Well, yeah, I, I hate labels here by what we call the Roman Catholic community. And I, all the life and time surveys show that something between 15 and 22 percent of the Roman Catholic community do not wish mm. to support United Ireland. And 99 percent of the Protestant community don't support United Ireland. And as the economy continues to prosper, as it is, right, the lowest unemployment okay. in my lifetime... People will not want to, to cause... Okay, well, you're, you're, you're feeding into Mark Daly's arguments there to some degree. Senator Daly, uh, you came up with seven key areas uh, and fears about the economy, uh, along with healthcare and welfare, was one of them. Uh, I think Jim Wells has been expressing uh, another fear that people would have should there ever be a, a case uh, mm-hmm. that we'd be looking at at a poll and that would be loss of identity and triumphalism on the part of nationalists. Yeah, just to go back on Jim's point, one of the opinion polls that he didn't cite there was one in October in 2018 by the Life and Time survey. When people in Northern Ireland across the communities were asked, in the event of a hard border and a hard Brexit, would they be in favour of the United Ireland? For the first time ever, an opinion poll in Northern Ireland showed that the majority were in favour. So there are issues which we all have to discuss. But, you know, I'm talking about the views across unions. And by the way, it is not one view, but there are differing views. And unlike Jim, some believe that there is a probability, possibility and a likelihood of a referendum. And I, like Peter Robinson, agree that if there is going to be a referendum, we have to have the discussion well in advance and do the preparation that wasn't done when it came to the issue of the Brexit referendum. And we all see the consequences of having a referendum without proper engagement and discussion and preparation. Mm. But going to your point on the issues I found, and by by the way, I, I accept that in no way would this be a reflection of all the fears of the unionism, but there was themes that came across when people were discussing the issue of their fears of United Ireland. And the biggest fear, of course, was the issue of identity, which you have raised, and the concern of triumphalism by nationalism. And Jim would be aware of this issue, where it was raised time and time again when I met with members of the unionist community and the loyalist community. Uh, the naming of a playground in Newry was brought up, and, and that was raised as a concern, as this will be our future, that we will have street names named after uh, members of the IRA. Will Bobby Sands International Airport be, be, be the name of the airport in Belfast? And this was a serious concern, and I, I, that concern would have to be addressed. The issue of land, which in the South many would be uh, amazed that anyone would raise that as an issue, but as Jim knows, there are concerns, and I'm reading a report in front of me from uh, Armagh where people in the UDR were targeted, and there were farmers along the border and they were targeted and that concern is there um, because they were members of the UDR but also because they were farmers mm. and also, also because they were Protestants and because they were Protestants uh, and unionists and this issue of retribution of former members of the security forces and what would happen uh, after a referendum, a return to violence, which Jim has spoken about. And I worked with UNESCO chairs who are experts in preventing violent extremism on the issue of how to prevent young people in disadvantaged communities being radicalised and mobilised by politicians and paramilitary leaders for their own ends to continue the status quo. Mm. The issue of the European Union, uh, members of the unionist community in Northern Ireland voted to leave the European Union and 
you know, in and the United Ireland, they, yeah. they would end up back in the European uh, And that's the issue that I, I think we most often speak to Jim Wells about, or at least uh, the issue that we speak to him most uh, about uh, in recent times. Uh, and I suppose you wouldn't have to worry about Brexit if you were part of an all-island Ireland, because Ireland would be in the European Union. Uh, but you don't believe there's going to be a, a poll, so it's not an issue. Is that right, Jim Wells? Yeah. I don't believe there's going to be a poll, and also Senator Daly. How does he think the Irish Republic is going to find €3,000 for every man, woman and child in the Irish Republic to pay for United Ireland? He has an answer for that, I think, Mark Daly. Yeah, thanks, Jim. And like what I try to do in this research is work with global experts, as I said, in relation to the return to violence. But I also work with a man who was the senior economist at the Germany desk for the International Monetary Fund during German reunification. And he looked at the true running costs of Northern Ireland in a reunification scenario. Now, as as is often quoted by many people, they say, well, the true running cost of Northern Ireland is about a 10 billion subsidy has to be found by the Irish government in order to keep Northern Ireland going. But what Gunther Thurman, the senior economist at the IMF, uh, during, German during German reunification found out was that in fact a lot of things that are attributed to Northern Ireland as part of its expenditure is not applicable in a reunification scenario. So, for example, included in the running costs of Northern Ireland currently is Northern Ireland's share of British military global spending, Northern Ireland's share of the UK debt interest payment, and Northern Ireland's share of the UK's contribution to the EU, including, of course, there's a contribution there for the running costs of the royal family. His argument is that none of that would be applicable in a reunification scenario. Then you have the issue of an accounting adjustment figure of 1.1 billion. Sometimes it's the Royal Mail pension. Some years it's quantitative easing. Some years it's the student loan scheme. Again, not applicable. As Jim knows, there's a, a civil service uh, that is slightly inflated compared to the South in Northern Ireland. And over time, there would be savings on that. Now, the difference in between the North and the South and I'll use Northern mm. Ireland and the, and the Republic Irish of Ireland. Republic just, of Ireland, yes. Yeah, just, just to be clear. Yeah. Um, just to be correct. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, just give us the, 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 the uh, final figure. Instead, instead, of, yeah. instead of 10 so billion. When, when Gunther Thurman looked yeah. at it, and he also, and this is the figure that he found, and he said, well, he said also the issue of pension payments. He said the pension contributions were made by people in Northern Ireland to the British Exchequer, and therefore that pension liability remains a liability of the UK government, not a, a mm. liability of the, the Republic of Ireland government. Okay, so we and started. Therefore, he said there would be about a saving of 2.8 billion per annum. He said instead of 9.4 billion. Yeah of a subvention. He said the difference would be taking all those mm. very logical steps into account of expenditure not attributable to Northern Ireland in reunification scenario. He said the difference is 700 million. Okay, Jim Wells, you asked the question. Uh, you, might, you, might, you might be regretting that you did ask the question, <laughs> but you, you got the answer. Do you accept that? Absolute fantasy land, of course, £700 million. Pounds. Of course, that's still money that has to be found out of the, the Irish Exchequer. But the, real, the reality is that, the, you know, even if you have the estimate, the £5 billion, I still ask the question, where are they going to get €1,500 Euros for every man, woman and child forever to pay for the unification of Ireland? Uh, the 17, £700 million, I think most people would laugh up, at up here, uh, because obviously we also inherit, of course, the colossal debt that the Irish Republic has, which is even higher per, per capita than the United Kingdom. 
uh, we're still going to have to pay money into into security force uh, budgets as well. And you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't have a total uh, unification and then say that the 2.5 billion legacy of pension payments is something that the British government are going to pay for. I mean, well, that, Jim, that, Jim, just just can I take on the pensions issue, like and just a simple pension issue? You do accept that the British Exchequer received the pension payments from people working in Northern Ireland as part when they were working. Yes. And therefore, as happened in Brexit, the example here is in Brexit, that the British government agreed that there were pension liabilities that they have to pay in Brussels for people who worked for the British government and for on behalf of the British government in Brussels over the last 40 years. So there's a logical step to this that, in fact, the pension liability for Northern Ireland would remain as part of the British Okay, all right. Maybe, maybe that answers the question for you, Jim Wells, or maybe not, because uh, I, I can't imagine us reaching a, agreement. I'm running over time, uh, but just well, to, to address I mean, that final point, point. I don't accept any of this, but the reality is the fundamental reason why we don't want to become part of the United Ireland is we're not Irish. Well, you know, uh, we, we are part, we're British citizens, we're part of the United Kingdom. We don't feel any more uh, Irish than the Alaskans feel they're Canadian. We're just a totally different community. We feel affinity to Britain and to the rest of the United Kingdom in exactly the same way that simply because the Irish Republic happens to be attached to part of the United Kingdom does not mean that, that the Irish feel British. Okay, I you have know, run I, over time. I have to leave it there. I think uh, this conversation could continue and maybe we'll return to it uh, again another day. Uh, very uh, interesting debate. Uh, debate I think everybody will agree and thank you both indeed uh, for discussing it with us here this morning Jim Wells DUP MLA for South Down and Fianna Fáil Senator Mark Daly Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, as you know, Lisa Smith uh, from Dundalk is a former Irish Air Corps flight attendant. She worked on uh, the government jet, went uh, to Syria, became radicalised and is now in a refugee camp. Fianna Fáil says she should be allowed return to Ireland with her two-year-old child. And we're joined uh, by... Uh, Niall Collins, who's Fianna Falls spokesperson on foreign affairs and uh, trade and on the line. Uh, a very good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, there'll be a lot of concerns, uh, I think, uh, surrounding uh, the return of Lisa Smith to Ireland. But do you believe it should happen? Why so? Uh, good morning, Michael. Well, we, we've been uh, saying this for a number of months now within the Fianna Fáil party. Uh, Lisa Smith is an Irish citizen. Her daughter is an Irish citizen, and um, as such, we have an obligation to her in that regard. Now, it's not a it's not a straightforward uh, case, as we know. It is a complex case, and indeed, it's a case that uh, public opinion is divided upon. But, however, I, I think um, we've seen the interviews uh, that both the BBC and that RTE have broadcast recently, and it's quite clear that despite the statement. Um, that Antisha Gleovaradkar um, has made um, months and months ago, almost seven or eight months ago at this stage, uh, that there doesn't seem to be any form of a coherent plan uh, to try and uh, achieve that aim of uh, bringing one of our citizens home uh, from the circumstances that she finds herself and her daughter in now. Now, what would be involved in getting her home? I, I, I think, well, well, obviously there'll, there'll be logistics, Mm-hmm. Uh, there'll be security uh, issues. Uh, there'll, there'll be all those types of assessments will have to be done. Um, but, but unfortunately, what, what we can, I think, what we can take from uh, the two interviews which have been broadcast uh, by both the BBC and RT, uh, there seems to have been um, absolutely no contact uh, or, or anything of substance 
with Lisa Smith um, from the Irish authorities. Now, there was a report that that, um, our, our, uh, that the Defence Forces um, were kind of preparing or drafting a plan, again, that's unsubstantiated mm. or unconfirmed. Um, she did say herself that she didn't have any contact. She said that uh, as part of her BBC interview. Um, and despite all of that, uh, when the Taoiseach is um, asked about it and challenged about it, um, you know, he says he, he'd like to bring her home, uh, but of course there is a cost associated with it. Uh, he, he's saying all the right things, but uh, it all appears very, very vague, and when you uh, dig deeper into it, there, there doesn't seem to be any plan at all. And, and I think, um, you know, we, we just need to know, are the government serious about this? Because mm. Um, fundamentally, at the end of the day, um, she is an Irish citizen uh, and she's entitled uh, to uh, return here if she so wishes. Okay. But we'd need to send Irish Army Rangers out there, wouldn't we, or, or something like that, uh, if she was to return home. Uh, and uh, there's the prospect of uh, putting the lives of other Irish, Irish citizens at risk. Is that a, a risk worth taking? Well, look, I'm not in a position to, to, to really... Um, uh, you know, give an informed opinion as to what would be required logistically. But I did hear the Taoiseach say, um, uh, I, I suppose, put forward what you were saying there, that it is a war zone uh, and would we be putting um, some of our own people and resources in jeopardy? But yet at the same time, it, it is worth remarking that uh, BBC and RTE uh, were able to send a journalist and a camera crew to, to, to interview her. Um, uh, journalists quite uh, often go into war zones they do, they do absolutely but uh, the point I'm making is um, she is in a refugee camp Um, you know she's Mm. uh, so uh, look I mean I'm I'm not qualified to comment on that aspect of it, naturally there will have to be screening Okay. When you when you say you're not qualified to comment on that aspect of it, I take it uh, you're not uh, in a position to say what level of risk there might be if there is any level of risk. But if there is a level of risk to Irish troops who might be needed to bring her home, uh, would that be the right thing to do if this woman trained children to fight for ISIS? Yeah, and again, that that is something um, which would have to form part of the security risk assessment. Um, I heard her say in her interview she's contesting that point. Uh, she contested it vigorously as part of the uh, BBC interview and again as part of the RTE interview. Uh, she was challenged quite forcibly on that and, and, and she was adamant um, that she wasn't involved in, in training children. Oh, I but know, look, that, I know. That Oof. has to be... Yeah, that has to be that's what people are going to be worried about, aren't they? You know, absolutely. And Look, rightly so. For somebody to uh, go to Syria and uh, become an ISIS bride, uh, I mean, there's a lot of reason to be concerned, and a lot of reason to be concerned when you're told uh, that a former soldier is being asked if she was training children how to kill other people. Absolutely, and and I'm not dismissing any of that, and I'm taking that quite seriously, and that has to be part of the. Uh, security and the risk assessment uh, and in terms of the plan of uh, reintegrating her uh, into society when she returns here, if and when she returns here to Ireland. I suppose our fundamental point is uh, what you know we, we have been saying is that she is an Irish citizen. Um, she's expressed a desire uh, to return home and um, the government has been challenged on a number of occasions in relation to it, has said that they would like to see her come home 
But yet, when we uh, challenge and probe them a little bit further, there doesn't seem to be any detail. Uh, you know, they'll make a statement when challenged at a press mm. conference or at a doorstep. Uh, they'll they'll pass a remark or a comment, uh, which will get them out of that moment. But unfortunately, uh, there doesn't seem to be any detail at all in terms of how they're actually going to uh, put in place um, a process. Okay, if you, if, if you get past that process of bringing her back to Ireland, what should happen then? Well, again, look, I mean, you're, you're the the our, our defence forces intelligence service, uh, our, our the agency of state and Garda Síochána, they're going to have to be involved in that. Obviously, um, you know, she's going to have to be uh, supported. She's going to have to be uh, possibly uh, monitored uh, and assisted in terms of reintegrating herself um, back into back into society here. Look, as I said to you, I'm not dismissing at all. Uh, the complexity of this, um, and it's it, you know it is a very 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 extreme example um, that we have to deal with. But I, I just uh, think that we need to make sure that the government are honouring what they're saying in terms of their intent or their commitment uh, with a plan and with a process. And unfortunately, there's nothing obvious coming from government in relation to that. So I, I'm not happy uh, to say to, to have the government say they're going to deal with it when in fact. Uh, every other indication points uh, us in the, to the logical conclusion mm. that really nothing is happening in the background. And should she be under surveillance 24-7 for the rest of her life or should she be allowed uh, to live freely in this country? Well, again, like that's, you know, you, you, you'd have to ask, you'd have to put that question to somebody else. That would depend on, obviously, the assessment uh, of her, uh, the risk and security assessment and, and what the outcome of that would be. But um, I, I'm sure it, it would be a feature of her return for a period of time. How long or how short uh, or how indefinite that would be, I can't, I just can't say. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining Thank us you very this much. morning. Finna Falls spokesperson on Foreign Affairs, Niall Collins, TD. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. If you're listening to us in Drogheda and you're without water this morning, I'm afraid you're in trouble and you're going to be without water for some time to come. With apologies today from Irish Water, this is along the Dublin Road, Brinestown and Platten Road and all adjacent estates and premises in Drogheda who are without water. The reason is because of a major pipe burst and Irish Water is saying that at this stage, they're expecting the repairs to be completed by half 11 tonight. Uh, so you will be without water for the rest of the day and we'll have updates on that throughout the day. Now, if you believe everything that everybody is saying, Brexit is going to happen on uh, the 31st of October and uh, the United Kingdom will crash out of the European Union without a deal. Yesterday, the Thornister Simon Coveney said that uh, the next UK Prime Minister will have to accept uh, that major changes to the backstop are just not going to happen. It's Theresa May's last week in the job and uh, this week on Wednesday either Jeremy Hunt or Boris Johnson will become the next uh, British Prime Minister and both of uh, the candidates are saying that the backstop is dead. Let's uh, talk about where this is going or where it's not going with Paddy Malone, PRO for Dundalk Chamber of Commerce. And a very good morning to you, Paddy, and thanks uh, for joining us here this morning as always. Uh, 
I don't think there's anybody very optimistic uh, about uh, a change in uh, position from uh, one of uh, the candidates, whoever takes uh, the next top job in the UK. No, I think it's, I think that the, unfortunately the election itself got to a situation where they were trying to outdo each other as to how vehemently they were going to oppose the backstop. And I think they've probably committed hostages to fortune and Nigel Farage will be very quick at reminding them what they said during the hustings so that the ability and the flexibility to actually manoeuvre, they've, they've, they've walked themselves into an even tighter mm. cul-de-sac than they, than, than they were. Um, it's a bit like watching amateurs. It really is. Well, it may be so, but uh, at the moment uh, we're speaking in a circumstance whereby you can go up the road and uh, get 90 British pence for your euro. Yes, and uh, as long as it stays at 90 pence, the dog can live with it, and we can live with a wee bit more. Uh, but obviously, if sterling crashes out, as it's now been phrased, off the, off the euro, or off the EU, we're going to be looking at a dramatic fall in sterling just before Christmas, which is not anything that anyone in the dark wants to see. Um, but we're doing the best we can, and all we can do is plan for it. And uh, I've noticed even within our own members that there is a realisation that they're going to have to sit down now and think about uh, doing some breaks of planning through Intertrade or through the Leo office in Dundalk and mm. both organisations are gearing themselves up for uh, a difficult time. Okay, so, 90 pence for the euro does make uh, for very good value shopping in the north. Uh, what was it at its lowest? I don't follow it on a daily basis, to be honest. It was, it was, down, around, it was down around 83, 84 before... Mm. Uh, July 16, yeah. uh, when the crash happened. And it's now gone to, as you said, 90 pence. And mm. it's likely, I mean, there are expectations that it could go to parity or something like mm. that. Now, mm. when it was at 86 and we said we couldn't cope with a huge, huge change, yeah. and now we can. The reason is very simple. The UK has inflation rate running at about 4 or 5%. We're at zero. So first-year economics will teach you that sterling's going to slide slowly anyway as long as it has inflation higher than the other country. Uh, so we can live with a sterling gradual decline. What we can't live with is a, a sudden drop. That, that's going to be very difficult to deal with. But a, a gradual decline, we can live with it because when the UK shops, whether it's in Dixon's or whatever else, have to restock, they'll be restocking in euros to a large extent, and they'll feel the pain at that stage. Right. So it's a temporary thing, but mm. I really could do without it being the first week in November. Oh, uh, I'm sure. Uh, but even at 90 pence, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's good value. Uh, as we were hearing earlier on, uh, maybe it would make sense uh, to drive 10 minutes up the road and buy a, a second-hand diesel car. But if you left at 10 to 11 this morning and drove 10 minutes up the road, you might arrive at... Half to a quarter past five past twelve, yeah, <laughs> yeah. or ten to twelve. Or as 10 to, the case I mean, may be. Yeah. we're getting into farcical yeah. territory when it comes to that one. I mean, I'm glad that the government had applied a permit of common sense because I, I noticed that Derek Clun and Kelly, uh, both uh, Munster MPs, were saying Munster MEPs were saying, "Oh no, no, we we can go with Europe." They're not living along the border. They're not living in the real world. The, the reality of the situation is we can't live like that. There's mm. just no way. Um, so we have to accept the fact that we're going to have to um, accept. Uh, we, we can't live with it. So the government were right. We move with the British whether we like it or not. There are some things you have to do in tandem and some things you have to do um, 
coordinating it. And, and is that the only concern that you'd have uh, about changing uh, the clocks? No, it's not. I mean, I think we also can remember, I can remember when we had double savings, double, double hour savings in the 60s, and I can remember all the times when we were messing with the clock. Look, I do not like the winter months, mm. and I love getting a bit of sun, and my work would dictate that I don't. And I know that I get depressed mm. in January, mm. and there's no point in saying that I don't, and I know loads of others that suffer mm. the same way. But if it's that, or children's safety, walking along a country road in darkness, and going to getting to school at 9 o'clock, and it's still dark, no thanks. What were uh, the double-hour savings? Just tell us where that was. That was in the summer. Oh, it was a couple. Yeah. Uh, I was a child, and yeah, they moved yeah. the clock twice. So you had one hour of summertime, and then they moved it again. Okay, right. I, so you had a double hour. Uh, 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 it only happened one year, but I right. do remember it. Uh, mm. I'm showing my age now. Somebody will ring you up and tell you when it happened. Mm. Uh, but um, that, that argument, though, about children walking to school in the dark, uh, I think it is uh, one of uh, the most cited. Uh, but that's uh, something that belongs to the past. Most children are driven oh, to school now, aren't they? Look, anybody who drives along a country lane coming into work sees people standing on the side of a bus standing, uh, uh, waiting for a bus mm. I can remember doing it myself at the bottom of the rock road but kids are kids they're messing they're playing tag they're mm. touching each other they're pushing around the place they're, they are always careless when they're standing at a bus stop mm. it doesn't take too many geniuses to work out with for, for most of the winter though they're travelling in the dark and they're always travelling in the dark no, coming not, home when they get to school mm. it's 9 o'clock and it's bright mm. And they're running across the road at nine o'clock to go to into the school. So you drop the kid at one end, you drop the kid at the, uh, you know, on the near side, and the kid has to run across the school road. It's too dangerous, and we really don't need to do it. We've experimented with it before. No, no, we we we, we live with this. But it makes sense mm. to shift the hour the way we were doing it. I but mean, it gets dark at four o'clock. You know. Yeah, uh, and I can remember co- playing uh, football and coming out of school and yeah. playing football, starting to play football at four, and by the time it was five o'clock. You'd wonder how the hell you were still able to play, but you were, because you, your mm. eyesight got used to it, and it was only a couple of weeks. But if they're coming home in the dark at four o'clock, uh, would it not be better if it was bright? Uh, if it, it was four o'clock, o'clock. In, in the afternoon, when it's not icy and it's not frost, mm. is an awful lot safer than eight than eight o'clock in the morning when there's ice and God knows what else on the road. No, it does not make sense. And you know, Michael, can I just throw mm. a, a something to you which just makes it just the farcical situation of clocks changing. Before 1916, uh, clocks were set by local time. So London was forced to get sunrise, then it was Bristol and Liverpool, and then it was Dublin. And the result was that Dublin is 25, and Dundalk, Dundalk is 6 degrees west of, of London, so therefore it's 24 minutes later. Right. So, for example, when the Millennium Dive was being set up in Black Rock, they had to be very careful. Rod Bond did the calculation as to exactly where to position it. Uh, so that it would shine correctly. But we are 24 minutes behind London. And a guy was caught with, a, with a, his pub open after 11 o'clock at night, and his excuse was that he was working on Dublin time, not <laughs> London time. And he got away with it. <laughs> he won, did he? <laughs> he won, yeah. No, they changed the clock there to say GMT, Greenwich Mean Time or Standard Time. But he actually got away with it. And there was a situation where local time was based on the sun, not based on Greenwich. Mm. Um, a long time ago. But to be serious about this, it is a, it is a serious matter. And I think the safety of children, the, the, the going to school in, in, in frost and all the rest of it, I think you've got to apply common sense. It's, it's easy for us to not think about it now, but go, you know, we need to think about November and December and, and we, we get the right answer. Mm. We, 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 do, we move. It doesn't make sense to do it any other way.
No doubt there'd be terrible confusion. Uh, the Tonsha and the Taoiseach uh, have also been speaking about uh, the idea of a Northern Ireland only backstop, which I think was the original idea, which extended to the whole of the UK. Uh, do you see any prospect uh, of uh, that being accepted? I think, I think if, if there is a compromise, it is somewhere along that line. And mm. it would have happened, and I think we would be uh, beyond that point now, were it not for the fact that the DUP has... Um, control of the House of Commons and as long as that's what actually caused the problem Mm. in December 17 May had agreed to signing up to this Mm -hmm. everything was all right, and then suddenly the word came down that uh, Foster had seen what she'd seen and she actually dragged according to uh, an RTE documentary that was done last week dragged May out of the the room to say don't, no way Um, so and the reality of the situation is we already have checks if live animals come across from Stranraer or come across from, from, from into into uh, the island of Ireland, they are checked as if they were coming into Dublin. Okay, well, um, so we already have separate rules for Northern Ireland on a whole range of things. All right, um, well, significant change in terms of leadership uh, this week. How that may change uh, this conundrum, God knows, but we have to leave it there for the moment. Paddy, thank you as always for joining us this morning. Paddy Malone, PRO for Dundalk's Chamber of Commerce, brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.